Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Much better. That's uh, expecting a little bit more from Eric Bailey, but uh, twice I know. Not very loud. Well, this week um, I, ha- I had an incident in the morning with my wife, and it's kind of safe to share it this morning because my wife's not here. Um, and we, we, we have these, these moments every once in a while where she, she just rides me. It just In the morning, it is just sometimes rough. Men, I don't know if you've had these mornings, but um, yeah, it, it's brutal, and it, it, sometimes it hurts. My wife, she, you know, I am a man has a certain sheen and, um, about me, and so, you know, I don't spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. Uh, but she thinks that I do that I do spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. You know, I guess there's a certain compensation. If you don't have it up here, you know, most men it goes on their back. And well, for me, it's I, you know, you pick and you look and you see and you go, ooh, blackhead, ooh, what about this? Or you know, you get those little strange. Uh, I don't know if anybody else has this. This is just kind of one of these odd confession times. But you get those eyebrows, you know, those eyebrows that just kind of get that one strange one that does this. And there's no amount of, will make it sit. Well, I'll just, sometimes I'll admit, I'll, I'll sit in front of the mirror and just look and pick. Well, Laura has a ball with that. She goes, what are you doing? What are you doing sitting in front of the mirror? Well, what happens? My daughter. My behavior is passing on to my daughter. She loves standing in front of the mirror. She loves standing in front of the mirror. But there's something about mirrors that are extremely extremely awkward. Um, if, I, if I stand here for long enough, I'm willing to bet that Heather is going to get really uncomfortable. She'll just kind of go, oh, get it away from me. You know, you just stand in front of people with a mirror. And it's like, at first you go, <laughs> you know, you look deeply in it, and all of a sudden you notice, ooh, there's something, oh, okay, I've seen enough of me, it's time to walk away. Have you had that? Where you kind of, you walk into a room, sometimes those real cheap condos that, that you rent when you're in your college years, and it has, seems to have this whole wall of mirrors because it makes it look bigger. And you start getting this, this awkward feeling of, I'm seeing a lot of me. And seeing a lot of me is making me feel awkward, and I'm ready to move on. I want to get out of this place, um, a room without any mirrors, just, just plain walls. This morning, as we're going to be looking at Scripture, as we look deeply into the Word of God, as we read Scripture, Scripture is going to start reading us. And there's going to be these moments of, oh, I'd like to put it down. I'd like, to, I'd like to step away because as I am reading Scripture, Scripture is reading me deeply and saying, Hey, Paul, I'm speaking to you because this is you. This is about you. And, and as I was going through Mark uh, chapter 15, 1 through 20, so if you want to get a head start, um, I started feeling uncomfortable in a way that I've never felt uncomfortable with this section of Scripture. You know, I I watched uh, Mel Gibson's movie where uh, it depicted the the life of Christ, where it showed him in his whole passion, where he's he's brought into the city and he's tried, he's judged, And that, watching that, made me feel awkward because there was a lot of gore. And in fact, it felt, I felt heavy in a certain sense of guilt. But for the first time, as I'm reading through this, I found my place in the story. Where it's like, this is real. That's me. Mark is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about me, my place, 
entitled this morning, the sermon is called, I Am Barabbas. And for some of us, we're going, are you kidding? Not me. I'm a really nice, uh, clean-cut, suburbanite kind of folk. Um, I, I am no way a Barabbas. But if you listen carefully and you find yourself um, allowing God to speak to you, I am praying that at the end you go, yes, that is me. So read along with me, starting at uh, verse 1, chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they, have, they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he, who was Pilate, he used to release to... Uh, now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And along the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had stirred them up. But the chief priests, or, or sorry, it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Again, we're finding that we've got different characters in this, this story, this narrative. We've got ourselves Jesus who has, has uh, been uh, taken by the temple guard and the Roman, uh, the Roman soldiers from the Garden of Gethsemane. They brought him to uh, Caiaphas' place where he was judged and kind of put through um, a mock uh, trial at night. And then, um, so we've got Jesus... We've got the religious folk of the day. We've got ourselves uh, the Sanhedrin, 70 men who, who gather around and are kind of considered the fathers of, of Israel, the men who, who judge and lead and make rules and regulations for, for the, the people of Israel. So we've got Jesus, we've got the Sanhedrin, we've got, got now uh, the, the elders of the, of the people. So these are kind of even the fathers, even the closer, the more intimate groups of people who are brought into this. Then we now have Pilate. Now, Pilate. Pilate is, has been given quite a, a rough time, and, and rightly so. Pilate was hated during those days. Pilate was not, he, he was kind of the, the Rod Blagojevich, of the, of the Roman Empire, where you go, really? Mm, you're dumb. That, that, that really was not a wise decision. What you said publicly mm, should have really not been said at all. You made that decision? Oh, dumb, dumb, dumb. That, that's, that's Pilate. Pilate was the guy who was considered really, when it came to his leadership skills, he was considered really inept. He was... Also, on top of just being not a great leader, he was heavy-handed. So 
not being a great leader, he overcompensated and said, listen, if you're not going to if I can't influence you by what I do and what I say, I'm going to do it by force. And so he swings from one direction to the other direction. He wasn't a great leader, but you know what? I've got the, the force of Rome behind me, so listen to what I have to say. And because he would swing this way, the religious leaders of the day just had no appreciation for Pilate at all. Pilate would set off the people all the time. It started when he, he decided that when he came into the area, that he would come in with uh, the Roman flags that had the, an emblem of Caesar. So it had a face of somebody. So it was a graven image. And he would bring it into Jerusalem, the, the most holy city of all of Israel. And he even brought it into the temple area. The religious folk went berserk. They just went crazy. On top of that, there was another time, and this was the end of Pilate's uh, political career. A bunch of Samaritans were worshiping on Mount Gerizim. They were having a religious pilgrimage. And Pilate sent out his cavalry and killed the Samaritans. And that was it. Word had gotten back to Rome that Pilate was an idiot. And he was trying every way to compensate. And now Jesus is brought to Pilate. The religious leaders could not in any way execute a death sentence. So they looked to the Roman leader. They looked to Pilate and said, listen, we need you to do this. And they trumped up charges saying that, listen, this guy says that he is a king. He's the king of the Jews. You know what that means? He's a rebel. And he's undermining the authority of Rome. So, Pilate, you've got to do something. And we need you to uh, condemn him to death. We need you to take care of this problem. So Pilate takes the time of saying, come on, come on in. And Mark, Mark does not share very much of, of this story. If you look in the other Gospels, you're going to hear uh, in, in John and in Luke and in Matthew how it kind of spreads. Pilate has multiple uh, discussions with Jesus. On top of that, um, Pilate doesn't want, to, he, he doesn't want to make any decision. So what does he defer to? Herod Agrippa. Hey, you know what? I don't want to make this decision. This is too tough. How about you make the decision for me? So he passes it off. And Agrippa goes, seriously? I, I have nothing. I, I can't find any guilt with this guy. You take care of him. And he's back in Pilate's hands again. And Pilate's going, what do I do? What do I do with this man? And we can see, even see in the text that we read this morning that he basically comes before the Jews and says, listen, I, I, why would I crucify? Why would I, have him, why would I have him killed? I can find no guilt in him. There's nothing about him that makes me believe that he is this insurrectionist, this one who wants to overturn the Roman government. There's nothing about him. And you want me to do There's nothing. What do you want me to do? Pilate was very concerned about his place, his prominence. He had a very lucrative job. He had multiple palaces throughout the area. He was paid well by Rome. And he knew that one more screw-up would lead to him losing a job. And he knew he had to do the right thing for his job or he'll be done. So here stands Jesus. And the charges are that he's the king of the Jews. What do I do with him? What is my response? The right thing would be to dismiss it and say, you know what? No. 
this man needs to go free. There are no reasons. There's no facts. There's nothing undergirding this. Your charges, we're done with you. He's going free. But the, the religious people of the day were deeply threatened by Jesus. The more that they, they looked at Jesus, the more that they looked at Him, the more awkward and the more infuriated they would be. The more that they looked closely and they tried to find a flaw, the more that they looked closely at the character, more looked closely at the life of Jesus, more that they looked at His words, the more uncomfortable they were and the more angry they became. And Pilate saw that it was out of envy that Jesus was brought to him. There was something about how they brought up the charges that they Pilate's going, you know what, you guys have got a complex going on. You sh- he should be going free. But you, you guys have got a complex going on. But the more closely that they looked at Jesus, they saw that he was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their power because he was ushering in a different kind of kingdom. He, he had a certain grip on their lives that they could not get on. These people were, they were confessing their sins. There was, there was something that was going on whenever he would come into town. People would be healed. Lives would be changed. People were listening closely to his, his teachings, unlike what was going on when people would come to them. He was a threat to their power. On top of that, Jesus did not fit into their expectations, their molds of what a Messiah was going to be. The religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, the the elders, all those people were looking for the kind of Messiah that would be bring in a new empire who would be like David. A military genius that would establish a nation, a kingdom. And Jesus is saying He's the Messiah. His kingdom, His way of doing things, did not fit. On top of that, He showed them what they really were. He came in and cleaned out the temple. Could you imagine? It's like somebody coming in here and saying, Paul, you're done. You're an idiot. What are you doing here? Clear out all you folks. Throw over the soundboard. The AV guys would go a little berserko on that. Go into the children's ministry. Kick out the kids. You as parents would go, whoa, 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 that's my kid. And the people would say, well, you know, what's going on? This is not what takes place in church. Jesus came in and cleared the temple out. He said, listen, this, you, you've made this a den of robbers and it's supposed to be a house of prayer. What are you doing here? On top of that, he has called them whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside. You even dress right. But you, you are a whitewashed tomb. Nothing but dead. You reek of death. Jesus continued to pull out all this. And the religious leaders were done. And hopefully Pilate would answer their their call. Later on it says that uh, Pilate said, listen, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do with this, this king of the Jews? Because, listen, I find no fault with him. And they kept on stirring up more and more and more noise. More and more noise within the crowd. In verse 11 it says, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. That, That word stirred up the people, stirred up, in in the Greek is seismon. 
It was like a seismic thing that was going on. It was like a, an earthquake. It was like they were, come on, let's get going. And the place was just shaking and roaring. They stirred up the people. And Pilate is going, I have got to do something. A riot is going to take place. And I'm sure all, all the, the Roman soldiers were going, okay, Pilate, pull the trigger. You played your last card. What are you going to do? And in a genius moment, he says, ah, I'll release to them the most horrid person possible. The most horrid person. And I've got just the guy. Barabbas. Barabbas. Yes. He was an insurrectionist. He was known for murder, not only of the Romans, but also of the Jewish people. He was considered a zealot. So if you, you think of a, the Islamic jihad, jihad, that was Barabbas. He was the one that said, listen, religiosity, religiosity plus violence to make a pure nation. I, listen, we're going to do whatever it takes to institute what God has ordained. If, even if that means killing our own. Even if that means killing the Romans. And he was in jail. And he goes, who do you want me to release? The king of the Jews? Or Barabbas? The one that I can find absolutely no fault with? I'm just standing in amaze. There is nothing I can find. Even I sent him off to Herod of Agrippa and and he said that, you know what, make up a decision because I can't find any fault in him. Or Barabbas. You know what he's done. He was in the Jerusalem Times. You've read about him. He's one of those guys that carries a dagger around and just takes people out left and right. Him or him? Good guy, bad guy, white, black, you know? The guy in the white cape, black cape. Which one do you want? Who is it? Make a decision. But the religious leaders stirred up the crowd and said, we want him crucified. We'll take Barabbas. Barabbas. A man who was probably on death row waiting for his crucifixion. Crimes against humanity. And the crowd said, Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Let the scumbag go. Let Barabbas go. He deserves life. The perfect one? Put him on the cross. The one who's killed, maimed, broken laws. Him? Let him go free. For me, I'm looking at this and going, really? Even if you, you could just step back into time and say, okay, let's get a kind of a perspective. Were they that cold-hearted? Or were the religious leaders that good at being able to manipulate the crowd? Had they no heart at all? This week as we... Um, in uh, elder development and training and in um, my uh, elder meeting with Nathan, we are walking through the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, we're in chapter 1. And uh, this week we looked at 1, 
18 all the way through 32. And this is, uh, the, 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 the heading is God's wrath on unrighteousness. God's wrath on righteousness. And in this, there's this, there's this short little list where um, Paul, who is writing to the church in Rome, just goes off. Starting at, uh, well, we'll start at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I'm going, okay, it's not me. I don't fit into that. It's not my category. Maybe God's wrath isn't on me yet. But then he goes on. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to, to be done. They were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Yeah, that's you and me. Slanderers. Yeah. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Yeah, that doesn't include any of us here, right? None of us? Yeah. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I know that doesn't include any of us. We're free and clear there. Foolish, okay, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. I'm pretty sure that includes all of us in one form or another. And God's righteousness, His wrath is against all these things. He, he, there's one ounce of disobedience to God. To, to your parents, one ounce of boastfulness, one ounce of en- envy, one ounce of this, one ounce of that. God's wrath is against us because He's a holy God. And because He is holy, He can have nothing like that in His sight. He's a holy God. And He needs to be set apart from anything like that. And therefore, God's wrath and His justice demands a price to be paid. A price to be paid. And I think Barabbas got it. He was wicked, unrighteous, twisted, like us. Even though we think that we're pretty, pretty good, there's something about us that is even in that twisted, thinking that we're pretty righteous, pretty good, and against all those things, God's wrath is against. And then there's Barnabas, Barnabas, Barabbas. There's Barabbas who is going, I deserve death. I deserve it. I know the law. I know the law. I deserve death. James Boyce wrote this uh, in his, uh, his commentary on John about what might have been going on in Barabbas' mind as he's in prison. The Roman soldiery had stopped the riot and had taken Barabbas. His blood guiltiness was established. He had He was flung into his cell, there to await the moment of his death. A man who is is to be hanged has difficulty in keeping his hand away from his throat, where the rope is to soon choke him. I've been told by a chaplain in prison, where men are executed in a gas chamber, 
that the condemned practice long breathing. And sometimes will hold their breath until it seems that their eyes will pop from their sockets. They know that they are going to be put in a gas chamber and that they will hear a little hissing sound of incoming death. And that the breath they are now forcing into their lungs will be the last that they will ever know. They will hold on and on, straining at the thongs that tie them to their chair until they are forced in the inexorable law of breathing to exhale the last breath that contained pure oxygen and to take in the death that floats around them. Barabbas must have looked at at the palms of his hands and wonder how it would feel to have the nails ripped through the flesh. He must have remembered scenes of crucifixion death and the slow agony of the victims who suffered at times for a day or two before merciful death came to release them. He must have awakened with a start if he heard any hammering in the jail. And his mind must have anticipated the sound of the clanging hammers that would bring death near him. And then, in his prison, he heard the vague murmuring of the crowd that roared outside like a troubled sea. He thinks he hears his own name. He can tell that there are some angry cries and fear rises in his heart. He hears the sound of a key in the lock and the jailer comes to him and releases him from the chain that is wound around him where the Bible tells us that he is bound. He must have thought that his time had come. But the jailer takes him to the door and tells him, you're free. Barabbas was saved at the expense of Christ. I don't know if Barabbas ever really received Jesus Christ as his, as his Lord and Savior. There's some who believe that he did. We don't know that. But the truth is that Barabbas knew what substitutionary atonement meant. In a real physical kind of way. Substitutionary atonement. That's one of those words that just gets thrown around. Thomas Schreiner, uh, a theologian, says this. Here, here's a good definition of what Todd got, has it for me. Of what substitutionary atonement is. The Father, because of His love for human beings, sent His Son, who offered Himself willingly and gladly, to satisfy His justice so that Christ took the place of sinners. The punishment and penalty we deserve was laid on Jesus. Jesus Christ instead of us. So that the cross both... So that in the cross, both God's holiness and love are manifested. Barabbas got it. I'm guilty. I deserve death. Someone took my place. And he's, he's up on the platform going, I haven't even heard of this guy. It should be me. Jesus took his place. Jesus took the place of an unrighteous, broken, sinful man. The man that knew no sin took the place of the one who deserved it. And that's a picture for us. I'm Barabbas. Jesus stood in my place for my pride, my selfishness, the lust of my eyes, the shame, the anger, 
Jesus stood in my place. He stood in your place. Took your place. I want you to think how Barabbas walked out. If I was Barabbas that night, I think there would have been a combination of stunned happiness. Really? For me? How did I get away with this? You did that. I was on the lineup to be crucified. And a perfect person took my place. <laughs> I don't believe it. But the same night, there had, there had to be a certain amount of joy and happiness. And oh, I've got a new lease. There is now hope for me. I now get to live and breathe. Have, have a wife and have children and have a life that I've, I, I never would have had if I would have went to the cross. Christians. Do we get that? Do we get that Jesus Christ stood in our place, the perfect one, the righteous one, the holy one, the one who had no sin, and stood there for you, for me, for us? Pilate handed him over to his soldiers, beat the living daylights out of him. Eusebius one of the, the early writers said this about the, the scourging that took place. They were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their body, their entrails and organs, were exposed to sights. Jesus was took your place, took on the full brunt of pain, and he, he didn't flinch and say, okay, 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 uncle. Uncle, I'm done. What do you want me to do? He went gladly to the cross. Father, if there's any way, if there's any way that you can remove this, I know that it's possible. Please make it happen. But not my will, but your will be done. I will gladly go to the cross. That's the beautiful thing about the Gospel of Mark. You get to this part, and there is a mad dash to the cross. There's no waiting around. There's no little hop, skipping, and jumping around. Mark says, listen, this happened, this happened, and he went gladly to the cross. He took the price. He took it upon himself so that we can have life, so that we can live So that we can have hope. So the question this morning is. What do you believe about Jesus? And how does that impact. Your leaving and your coming. How does Jesus. Absorbing the wrath of God. Affect. How you love your husband. How you love your wife. How you deal with your children. How you deal with that very difficult boss or co-worker. How, do, how, how then do you deal with conflict and pain within the body of Christ? Because as soon as we are reconciled, made right with God, we should also be made right with brothers and sisters in Christ. When we're made right before God, because Jesus paid the price. It's not just me and my relationship with Jesus. Oh, this is sweet. There's a corporate aspect also. How do I love my brothers? How do I love my sisters? How do I love these difficult people? How do I live my life in light of the cross? 
in light of the substitution that took place. We sing these songs, and sometimes I see us go, Jesus paid it all, and we see hands up. Sometimes I remember Camp Manitoba where the lights are down, and we get these people just swinging back and forth. And I'm going, really? Do you get it? Jesus paid it all. All. How do we live in light of the cross with the good news? All to Him I owe. All to Him I owe. My thoughts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. All of me. Everything that I have. He took my place. I should have been condemned. He took my place. And out of gratitude, out of worship, I give Him my all. Everything. My free moments. My busy moments. My work, my leisure. I give it to Him all. Because He's paid the price. I give Him my wealth. I give Him my sexuality. I give Him my business that I have built from the ground up. I give it to Him all. I give Him my talents. I give Him my marriage. My children. My relationships. Jesus Hate it all. And looking at that makes you feel uncomfortable. And there's part of you that wants to turn away and say, I. When I look in the mirror, I know what's behind. I know what's behind that that facade. And if I look at it long enough, I get really uncomfortable with me in light of Jesus. I sing great songs. I might even work in the children's ministry and change a diaper. You know what I put... I put my dollar, $500 in the offering. I do my duty. But the more you look into the mirror of self in light of Christ, the more he's going, nope. I want it all. I want you to die to yourself. I want you to die to your wants, your needs, your desires, your everything. I, I want you to die to that. I want you to give that up. I want you to trust in what I have done. I hope, Monsieur Day Church, that we don't get sick of the gospel. I hope you don't get sick of it. Because I'm going to keep preaching it until we get it. Because Paul, when he was talking to the church in Corinth, he said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you are stand, and by which you are being saved you hold fast to the word of truth unless you really didn't believe it. I hope that we as a community of believers, a community of faith that just loves Jesus, that daily as we come back next week Sunday, as we gather again, we can say, listen, can I tell you, 
this was a painful week because I realized that I had to put to death this. But can I tell you something? There's extreme joy and hope because my, I put more faith into Jesus Christ. And we come back with, with stories of celebration about, man, you know what? My marriage is more beautiful and vibrant and rich because I put to death my selfishness. Because, you know what? I deserve death. I deserve nothing. But I put to death my wants, my needs, my desires, gave it to Christ. And from that, I learned how to love my wife, love my husband, serve each other. Oh my gosh, it is rich and it's beautiful. And that's what Christ wants from us. Oh my gosh, this week, I, I learned how to love that jerk in the office. I just wanted to kick him to the curb, kick her to the curb. But you know what? I learned what love is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall have eternal life. You know what? I I got that. I understand what love meant because He took a price for me. Therefore, I have got to love that jerk in the office. And He's no longer a jerk. Parents, I, I've got, I'll, I'll admit, i got difficult parents. I'm sure none of you do. And there's times where I just go, seriously? But as a son, I am learning that there's something beautiful that happens when I die to myself and I obey even my parents, I don't live in their house. Something beautiful happens. But it's only possible when Paul dies and recognizes what Jesus Christ has done for me. So, Miss Uday, if you're getting sick of the gospel and you think that this is just baby stuff, man, you know, there's other great churches out there. And, and, and I'll, I'll give you addresses. And I've got great friends of these churches as well. But you're going to hear every Sunday the gospel. You're going to hear what Jesus Christ has done. It's nothing that you earned, but what He has done and how that should lead us to worship, adoration, putting myself to death, putting Christ at the center of everything. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is the body of Christ participating in the Gospel. We get to sing about it with our songs, sing about what Jesus has done, you get to hear about what He has done as we, as we walk through Scripture together. But we also get to participate in it. We get to, as the bread is being broken, we are remembering Christ's body broken for us. His perfect life that was lived for us so that we can have hope. So that the sacrifice that He, he took on and give us life. And as we celebrate with, with the cup, we remember the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's by His blood that we are we're saved. We're healed. So we get to participate in this. Remembering. This past week, this past month, this past year, remembering these moments right now, confessing our sins before a holy, loving God.
And also remembering that He is faithful to His Word. For as far as the east is from the west, so far are our sins removed. So that should lead us again, and we'll do that after communion, to worship. To worship. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He broke it and said, This is My body that is broken for you. Put your name in there. It's My body that's broken for Paul, Casey, Tennille, Steve. This is My body broken for me. In the same way, After the meal, he took the cup of blessing and poured it out. This is a covenant, a new covenant in my blood. Poured out for Paul, for Cheryl, for Heath, for Cindy, for Deb. Do this as often as you eat and drink it in remembrance of me. Those who are serving, please come forward. I encourage you to take a moment or two. Confess your sins. If you need somebody to pray with, I'll be in the back. Nate will be in the back. Our other elder. Pray with you. Katie, if you're available. Katie will be in the back, ladies, if you're more comfortable praying with a woman. And you need somebody to pray with you. Please do that. But when you're ready, come, remember, believe that Christ died for you and has given you new life. Come, for all things are ready.